grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, like it or not, regret is a sad part of our lives every day. How many times a day do you hear this? If only things had gone this way. If only I had done that. If only I had not said those words. Just listen to the people around you sometime. For that matter, take the time to listen to what you yourself say throughout your day. And it doesn't take long to conclude that regret is indeed a part of our everyday lives. Sadly, we cannot go back and change things, can we? As the saying goes, you cannot unscramble eggs. Now, we, of course, understand that at the intellectual level. We may not like it, but we know it. And so this is not some grand secret I'm letting you in on. But that is exactly why regret comes to the surface. We know that we cannot change anything or make the past different in any way, and that brings us sorrow. When things get difficult in our life, what is it that we do? We lament about how things could have turned out differently. And this is especially true when death rears its ugly head in our lives. If only I had done this or had not sinned in that way, perhaps my loved one might still be with me. If only, if only, if only. As we turn our attention to the gospel lesson from this morning, we hear Mary and Martha in no uncertain terms, making their sinful regrets known to Jesus. Regrets that have a hint of blame to them. Oh Lord, if only you had been here, none of this would have happened. Our brother would still be with us. Now some of you might hear those words and say, sinful? How can these words be considered sinful? All they said was just the natural human response. Why, even Jesus expressed regret when he cried at the tomb, didn't he? Partly the words of Mary and Martha are sinful because they blame Jesus for Lazarus' death. And partly it is sinful because it is presumed that had Jesus been there, he would have had no other choice but to prevent that death at that particular time. And yet thousands and thousands of people died during Jesus' earthly ministry, didn't they? He did not postpone all of them, only a few. And he raised a mere handful from death back to life in those years. Yes, Jesus did cry at the tomb, but why? Was his weeping an expression of regret? Or was he instead expressing sorrow because... In his humility as the incarnate God, he had to behold the wretched and deadly grip that sin had on people. He knew that death was the penultimate reality for everyone that he encountered. Not only for Lazarus, but also for everyone around him that day who was mourning the death of Lazarus. 
Everyone, in fact, that he encountered during his entire earthly ministry. Everyone he encounters sitting in these pews and sitting in these chairs here this morning, unless he returns before your earthly demise. In fact, everyone you meet and everyone you are is a dead person. But consider for a moment what regret truly is. And it may help answer our questions. Webster's Dictionary defines regret as expressing sorrow over circumstances that are beyond one's own power to control or repair. In a nutshell, we express regret because we are not in charge. And that lack of control brings us first frustration and then anger and finally sorrow. When it's put into those terms, you can't help but think about regret as being part of the same sinful theme and sinful behavior spoken about in our explanation to the first commandment. There we learn that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Our regrets in this life repeatedly demonstrate the fact that we desire to be in charge. We desire to fear, love, and trust in everything but God and in His Word. But put that in contrast with Jesus, who had a perfect fear, love, and trust in His Heavenly Father above all things. Listen again to the words of Martha and Mary. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, while Martha and Mary here express sinful regret, do they still have saving faith in Christ? Absolutely. In fact, Martha even makes a confession almost identical to Peter's confession, boldly proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Mary and Martha simply tried to shape that faith into a particular process and move it toward a specific outcome according to their own preferences. But their statements of faith are still drawn from a knowledge that can only be known and a faith that can only be expressed and confessed by one to whom the Holy Spirit has revealed it, has first given this heavenly wisdom. And so does having saving faith mean that there is no longer any sinful chaff remaining in one's life? Well, just take a look at your own life to answer that question. Do you have saving faith in the all-redeeming work of Jesus Christ and in God's grace for you? And yet, do you still sin in thought, word, and deed? Do you still find yourself placing your fear, love, and trust in the things of this world? even as you confess Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? I'm sure that you do. So do I. It is exactly because of mankind's sin and the blinding and deafening effect of that sin that Jesus is moved to tears. Jesus was not regretting his absence from Lazarus' deathbed. He knew exactly what was happening every moment. Nor was Jesus beating himself up in guilt over taking a couple of extra days before responding to Mary and Martha's summons. If anything, that was to make the resurrection of Lazarus all the more miraculous, 
A man dead and buried for four days. This wasn't just some ER resuscitation. No, Christ sheds his tears because of the pain it brings him in seeing the deadly and painful effects that sin has had on all of us in our lives. Christ's sorrow, plain and simple, is grounded not in regret, but in his love for us. Christ experiences such sorrow because of man's sin and because of our complete inability to do anything about it in terms of bringing about our salvation, our comfort, or our peace. This point cannot be emphasized strongly or often enough. You cannot, by your own reason or strength, affect or produce your own salvation in any way, shape, or form. You will not find salvation on your own, despite all of your seeking and all of the searching that you might do. Now, while all of this may make perfect sense to most of you seated here today, and especially when things are going well in your lives, it's just as important to remember these same scriptural truths when the going gets rough in your life as well. There are many people who have confessed their faith in God when things are going smoothly, and then suddenly they fall into doubt when the going gets tough. And before you know it, they are seeking comfort in all sorts of things, and wisdom in the likes of psychics or self-help books, in destructive behaviors and habits, in listening to their inner voice instead of the Word of God, or to any number of other things. And that all of these are false hopes, temptations of Satan, of society, and of self that assault our senses and our minds every day. They seek to steal us away from the true comfort and the true peace that is found only in Jesus Christ and in His life-giving Word of the Gospel. Now, for those of you out there who are sitting there thinking that none of this pertains to you because you are such a true Christian, you would never look for hope or comfort in those other things, think again. The issue at hand is the lack of a complete trust in God. A complete fear, love, and trust above all things. That's something of which we're all guilty. Mary and Martha were outstanding believers. And yet when they were confronted by the brutality and the ugliness of the wages of sin, they still sinfully placed their trust in things other than the Word of God. When the going got tough, they looked toward the solution that their minds and their hearts wanted. They wanted to control the situation instead of looking outwardly and upwardly toward God, toward trusting His will. Their regrets revealed a desire to exercise control over a situation that belonged entirely to God. If only Jesus had been there when they first summoned Him, they thought, none of this would have happened. And how many times have you thought or said, if only God would have paid attention to my plans and hopes, if only God had responded sooner to my prayers, things would be so much better in my life right now. I ask you, does that sound like something that the person you see in the mirror each morning might say? More to the point, does it sound like, Father, thy will be done? Or does it sound more like, Father, my will be done? Dear children, 
beloved by that same Heavenly Father to whom we pray, and dear brothers and sisters in Christ, all of these things that we seek to control, all of these things that we otherwise put our trust in, can and do give us a false sense of confidence and assurance. And that's the key problem. They are false. None of these things can bring to life our body of sin. God and God alone grants us life in His Word. The Word made flesh. The Word hung on the cross for our sins. It is only because of Christ's sincere and heartfelt sorrow over our sin that we can ever come to know the joy and the peace of God. Jesus Christ went willingly to that cross to lay down His life as an all-atoning sacrifice for your sins, so that in His death you may have the true gift of life, which is in our Heavenly Father. And in the midst of all the fear and the suffering, the pain that Christ endured for you, He willingly made this sacrifice out of a pure and unsearchable love for you. There were no regrets in Christ for making such a sacrifice, even a supreme sacrifice. In the same way, we should have no regrets whatsoever in boldly proclaiming and sharing this life-giving word with all of those in our midst, with all of those we encounter. God has promised to be present. He has promised to work wherever His word of the gospel is proclaimed breathing life into those dry bones of death whenever they hear His Word, a death brought about by our fall into sin, a death into which we are all conceived. God's Word, and God's Word alone, brings life. God's Word is preached through simple men like Ezekiel, brought life and salvation to an entire valley of dry bones, bleached out bones, God's Word is spoken by the Word of flesh, made flesh Himself, also crushed the power of death that held Lazarus in the tomb. Christ simply called Lazarus by name, and the grave was completely powerless to hold Lazarus back from the call of his Lord and his Savior. Christ continues to come to us each and every day with no regrets whatsoever. He calls you by name to come out of your tomb of sin and death, to shed the sinful linens, the scorched and dirty trappings into which you're wrapped, where the world tries to bind you and seeks to lock you into sin and death. He calls you to put on a new robe, one of righteousness, one washed and made pure in His blood. Yes, our crucified and our risen Savior speaks these wonderful words of comfort and of life to you this very day through the likes of very simple and weak and sinful men. Because the power of God does not rest in men. It rests in His Word alone. That Word which reminds you that you've already been freed, unbound and locked into the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is most certainly true. In the midst of a fallen and sinful world of what-ifs and if-onlys, This blessed gospel promise is our absolute and unshakable joy and peace. It is our very life in the midst of death. It is Jesus, here in word, here in font, here in supper. And it makes you alive, now and forever. In His holy name, amen. Amen.